0: Well, I gather you've been working through Luke's Gospel. That's what you've been doing in the evening. So here we are at chapter 14. And I've called this, um, this passage the countercultural values of the kingdom of God. The countercultural values of the kingdom of God. And the reason I say countercultural is because it seems that even the leaders of Jesus' day had got the wrong end of the stick when it came to God's priorities When it came to what God wanted them to do. And um, it reminded me of a little um, story that I'd read uh, a little while ago, which goes something like this Um, After being nearly snowbound for two weeks during the winter, a Seattle man departed for Miami Beach, where he was to meet his wife the next day at the conclusion of her business trip to Minneapolis. They were looking forward to some warm, pleasant weather and to enjoying a break from the children. Unfortunately, there was a mix-up at the departure gate and the man was informed that he would have to travel on a later flight. So he tried to have the decision reversed but was told he had no alternative but to travel on that later flight. Well, on arrival, he found Miami Beach was having a heat wave and the weather was as uncomfortably hot as Seattle's was cold. And the receptionist gave him a message that his wife would arrive later in the day. Well, he could hardly wait to get in the pool, and he hurried, hurriedly sent his wife an email message. But because of his haste, he made an error in the address. And as a result, his message arrived at the home of an elderly widow whose preacher husband had been buried the day before. And the grieving widow opened her email to find this. Dearest wife, departed yesterday, as you know. Just now checked in. Some confusion at the gate. <laughs> Appeal was denied. Received confirmation of your arrival. <laughs> your loving husband. P.S. Things are not as we thought. You'll be surprised how hot it is down here. <laughs> <laughs> Things can be confusing, can't they? And we can make mistakes. And if, if it comes to mistakes, the Pharisees had really made a mistake they had just totally muddled up what God wanted them to be doing. And we see this in the passage. And and so let's pick it up. Um, We're on page 1047, um, Luke 14. And Jesus is invited to the house, we're told, of a well-known Pharisee, one of the significant uh, religious leaders of Israel. And he represents what the Pharisees stood for. So the values we see in this this chapter that come out are the values that the Pharisees would have held to. And immediately we see this conflict um, between the kingdom that Jesus is bringing and the teachings of the Pharisees. And I've really only got two points tonight. And the first one is this, that Jesus is really bringing compassion over religious tradition. We see something of Jesus' compassion which trumps their religious tradition which we see in verses 1 to 6. And, and the way it works out is this, that um, he's being watched carefully. It's interesting, he's being watched, but he's also watching them. That comes out in the passage. And Jesus sees a man in need. And the man who's in need has got this disease called dropsy. Uh, I'm not a medic, but I gather it's when uh, water gets some sort of stuck in certain parts of your body, and your body swells up. It's pretty horrible. And um, this was an obvious illness. And um, Je- Jesus, regardless of the fact that it's the Sabbath, decides that it's right to help this man, to heal him. But the Pharisees, of course, seem completely blind to this. And even if they weren't blind, they wouldn't heal the man because it was a Sabbath. It was their special religious day. And they believed that you couldn't do that sort of thing on that day. Um, They'd made up all kinds of rules about what you could do and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. But let's just be fair to those um, religious leaders for a minute. Um, They had an emphasis on keeping the Sabbath, and that emphasis was a good thing. It's good to keep God's command, to have a day off every week. And, And the reason, I guess, they were a little bit overzealous about it was because only a few hundred years earlier, you might remember from Israel's history, the Jewish people had been exiled from the land because they didn't obey God's laws. And one of them, of course, was about the Sabbath laws. And so they carefully defined what work was on a Sabbath. They didn't, you know, they didn't want to intentionally disobey God's law, so they tried to work out what is work. However, if human life was in danger, even with their rules, you were allowed to, to set aside the Sabbath rules to save life. And in fact, I'm told that even um, Jewish doctors and nurses today go to work on a Saturday Saturday because there's a possibility of saving life. But in a sense, these guys have set aside the real heart of the Sabbath in order to fulfill their own traditions. And so they've made up these laws that seems to go against the fact that there's a man who's in need, and they don't feel they can intervene. In fact, they don't even see him because of these laws. Their religious tradition kind of blinded them to the needs of this man. And Jesus tries to personalize it for them. You can kind of see he's trying to help them to get it. And he says, what if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath? Will you not immediately pull him out? It seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? The answer is, of course you would. You know, if your child falls into a well, guys, and it's the Sabbath, you're not just going to go, oh, I can't do any work, I can't throw them a rope, that's work. You know, of course you're going to get involved. If your ox falls down, it's your livelihood. Of course you're going to get involved. And Jesus is saying, have that same feeling towards others, towards others that you come into contact with. The problem was their, their religion, their tradition, had somehow affected their hearts, that their hearts had shriveled up to the needs around them. That's really what was going on. And, you know, it's possible, actually, even for us Christians... For that to happen to us, for our hearts to just get hard, to get hard. I remember it was some years ago. I um, I like reading um, different church leaders' books, and there's one guy I really look up to, this guy called Bill Hybels, he runs a church in America called Willow Creek Church, and um, he talked about um, something that happened in his life, and it was a statement. You know, sometimes you just hear statements that really stay with you. This was the statement I heard, and it really stayed with me, and he said this. He was very, very honest, really opening up about his frailty, his mistakes, and he said this. He said, the work I was doing for God was destroying the work of God in me. The work I was doing for God was destroying the work of God in me. And he goes on to explain how it happened. And basically, he'd been given so many messages. He was always preaching. He was always you know, having to work hard to do this particular job that he was doing. And it got to the point where he was so driven to get that job done that he was oblivious to the needs around him. And it happened one day that he was in a, in a convenience store and he was buying something, and uh, he'd bought the item that he was going to buy. And he was trying to get out of the store. And he, you know, it was a bit of a rush. He's a busy man. He's a busy pastor. Got a few thousand in his church or whatever. So he's rushing out. And um, the guy coming in the door was in a wheelchair. And uh, the man was struggling to get in the door and, you know, was obviously taking, could, couldn't rush. Was taking his time, was struggling a bit. People were helping. And it was taking, you know, quite a long time. And he talks about how he was just frustrated. He was like, man, can't this guy get in the door? I've got things to do. And, you know, that was what was going on in his mind. And, and as he managed to get out the door eventually, and he rushes off to his next appointment, he says the Lord just, just hit him. And he just suddenly... I think the, the word was, um, what have I become? He was suddenly aware of, what have I become? I'm doing all this religious stuff, but I haven't got a heart for the fact that this man is, is ill and disabled and needs help, and I just wanted to get out. And... Um, uh, it's possible, I think, as Christians, for our hearts to have times when they're shrinking. Of course, they should be growing, right? As we're Christians, as we grow in this life, as we get filled with the Holy Spirit, um, our hearts should be growing. We should be coming like Christ. That is, the, that is what happens as we get filled with the Spirit and we're faithful to God's Word and we grow. Our hearts grow. But sometimes they can shrink when we get our priorities a little bit wrong. For me, I, th- I think the challenge... For us in Hounslow, one of the challenges, particularly for me in this area, if I'm honest with you, is with our homeless ministry. We have a a homeless ministry called the Olive Branch that we run out of our church. It's an an amazing ministry, and the church... In the interregnum, when they were really struggling without a vicar, they started this new ministry, which is usually not advisable in interregnums to start new things. But they started this ministry with with homeless people. And uh, it is absolutely amazing. And we get about 40 to 45 men and women, homeless men and women, who come to our church building every Saturday and they get a hot meal, they get um, showers. We've installed some showers, they get showers, and they can get some newer clothes. and uh, and referred on to other places where they can get help. And it's it's a brilliant ministry and and it's run with two other churches and I I have no credit you know I didn't start it it's just brilliant I'm just so pleased it happens. But I have to say sometimes guys if I'm honest with you the homeless guys are a challenge. So they come into church and uh, this morning for example all the coffee was gone by 10 o'clock all the pastries were gone by about 10.10 and and Sometimes I know some of them are high, because some of them are, are on drugs. And I think, oh my goodness, there's a new family coming today, and they're going to see Johnny, who's, been, who's drunk, and they're probably going to never come back to the church again. And, uh, and all these kind of things. And some, sometimes, because they're really struggling in life, they might be rude. Um, and if I'm honest with you, sometimes my heart towards them is small. Sometimes I'm like, Lord, why are we doing this? It would be easier if we just stop doing that ministry. And you know, it's only when you stop and you just pause for a bit and you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And, and then you remember the Lord says, listen, I love these guys. I love these, these homeless men and women and you've got to forgive them my love and be there for them. So anyway, I'm just saying, whoop, I mustn't keep doing that. We have microphones that do that, so I'm not used to doing that. Um, we, I know that our hearts can shrink. And so... It's interesting, isn't it, how sometimes compassion can be dampened, can be squashed or squeezed out, or almost extinguished altogether. There's a song I love, um, I don't know if you, you sing it here, called I See the King of Glory. You guys sing that one, I See the King of Glory? And there's a line in it that goes like this, it goes, Break my heart for what breaks yours. Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. And I love, it. I love that song, particularly for that line. And then it goes on to say, Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Break my heart for what breaks yours. And I guess the question I want to ask you tonight is how's your heart? How's your heart, brothers and sisters? Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Is it broken for what breaks God's heart? Is it hardened? Jesus then um, challenges them over another issue, not just compassion, but he challenges them about humility, doesn't he? And I've called this little section Humility Over Status Seeking, which is the rest of the passage. But before we get into that, have you ever noticed how um, God has a way of humbling you? Have you noticed that God finds little ways of doing it? Okay, I'm going to tell you how he does it with us. Okay, so a few years ago, we took up caravanning, the sort of caravan that you kind of tow behind your car. Um, has anyone uh, ever done caravanning? Whoa, there's a few people. I was kind of, I was thinking, no one in Claygate's going to tell me they're caravanning. I thought I'd be like on my own here. But thank you guys, that is really good, it's good to see. Anyway, we have got, we bought a few years ago a second-hand Bailey Pageant Moselle. Believe me, it's a mean machine in many ways. And um, in fact, Jed's christened it Betsy the Specialist. I don't know why he's christened it that, but that's what it's called. So we get into Betsy on every holiday, well, not every holiday, but quite a few holidays, and head off somewhere in our caravan. And when we bought the van, uh, we were probably a little bit naive about the amount of paraphernalia that you have to uh, buy when you buy a van. We we thought we buy the van, the caravan, and then we'll buy a water barrel, and we're set. But oh, No. Oh, no. Um, the caravanning world is a world of gadgets, gizmos, and miniature kettles. And you've got to be fully kitted out to go anywhere. Anyway, there was one particular gadget that we totally kind of rejected. Uh, we thought, no, we'll never need that. And this particular gadget is called a remote-control caravan mover, RCM. And, um, yeah, we thought, we don't need one of those. And what basically what it is is it's a device where you... Um, you, you, you find your pitch where you're going to put your caravan. You unhitch your caravan from your car, from the tow hitch, and then you get out your remote control, your RCM, and you're just going, mm, and your caravan does all that you expect it to do. And we were like, we don't need one of them. We're strong. We're young. We can, we can move that van anywhere, and there's no problem. So we won't go for one of those. However, the last time we went caravanning, um, Susie noticed that um, when I was positioning the van, and I do reverse rather well, I think, with our um, <laughs> caravan. As we were positioning the van, it, we, it was slightly on the slope. Um, but I, I, I didn't think that was a big problem. And Knowing best, I overruled and said, don't, don't worry, don't worry, honey, I've got this. I've got this, it's going to be fine. And by the way, if you ever want a laugh, go to a caravan site and watch a husband and wife trying to put up an awning. It's... <laughs> It's comical, honestly, or trying to position their own caravan without an RCM like we were trying to do. Anyway, Susie had warned me, and I thought, I can do this. It's going to be fine. And um, I ploughed on ahead, you know, knowing that I was a man who knew how to reverse a caravan, knew how to sort it out, and it'd be fine. And, uh, and then I heard this squeal from behind the van. Stew, it's going to crush me! And, uh, and suddenly the van was moving back at rapid speed, and Susie was trying to be behind it with a barrier. And literally, in that moment, that all my um, status as a neat caravanner went out the window, because people came running from everywhere, from the site. I don't know where they all came from, but there were keen caravaners running to help us. They were poised. I think they knew. They'd seen the rookie. And they came running, and people had logs to shove under the wheels to stop it moving. You know, they, they were there. In fact, one guy was starting to move his car, because it was sort of heading towards his car. I mean, honestly... Uh, yeah. So, I, you know, that day I realized that I nearly killed my wife and um, knocked into this guy's car and my status was low. God has ways of humbling us, brothers and sisters, and you'll probably have your own stories to tell of how he's done that in your life. But if we come back here to the passage, Jesus noticed how the guests in this house were kind of going for the places of honor. They wanted status. And uh, we know that Pharisees like that, didn't they? From from reading Luke's Gospel, you may have come across the Pharisees a bit already. And uh, they liked to be seen as the holy ones, the ones who knew the law, the correct ones, the ones who knew how to pray, the sort of real um, um, godly people. And uh, interestingly, it's not so different today in the world and sometimes in the church, I think. Human nature craves recognition, uh, we like to be respected, don't we? We like to be honoured by others. We like other people to look up to us. And Jesus sort of uses this um, situation to explain how he sees things a little bit differently. And he tells them that, that um, parable, uh, beginning there in um, verse 8. And he says, he tries to explain to them, imagine um, you've been invited to a wedding. Um, it's not a good idea, he's saying, to go and take the honoured seat. Can you imagine if you've been invited to a wedding and you decide, oh, I think I'm going to sit at the top table today with the bride and the groom and the parents, you know what's going to happen. Someone's going to come up to you and say, sorry, mate, your table's back there, you know, behind the pillar. And um, it, and it's much better to go behind the pillar and for the guests to go, what are you doing here? Come on up closer. And, and that's what Jesus is trying to say to them. It's much better to um, take the lowest and be asked to move up than to have the humiliation of being asked to move down. And then Jesus gives this, uh, this verse, and this is really the key verse of the passage. So if you're going to remember anything, really remember this verse. It's verse 11. Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself or herself will be humbled, and he or she who humbles himself or herself, will be exalted. And, and this is a principle that seems to run all the way through the Bible. It's not just here. It runs all the way through the Bible. And, and Jesus himself lived this out. Jesus was a humble person. In fact, let's just do a, a quick turn. If we can turn forward in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I know many of you will know this passage so well, but it It's such an amazing few verses. It's worth just going back to as we're on the subject of humility. And uh, in Philippians chapter 2, it's on page 1179. Paul, who writes to the Philippian church, says this in verse 5. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is God being made human, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, you notice he, he, he was so humble, the humblest that ever lived, and so he's exalted to the highest place that there could ever be and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. 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 Jesus lived by this principle. Jesus was the most humble man, wasn't he, that ever lived. And so he's exalted to the highest place. So, really, if Jesus is our role model, how do we, as God's people, fall, uh, avoid falling into this trap of status seeking? in our own lives. How do we avoid that? And as you know, we we all do actually, if we're honest, even as Christians, uh, we do it, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. um, we, We sort of end up doing this somehow, and comparison and competition gets in, whether it's to do with our houses, or our cars, or our professions, or our qualifications, or our finances, or our relationships, our social circles, our bodies, even church leaders, you know, uh, Philip and I will tell you, these conferences that you sometimes go to, people ask, how big's your church? You know, and it, it, sometimes is a challenge. Comparison and competition, seeking some level of status, some level of honor, it hits us all if we're honest, because we're human. And if we take Jesus' words seriously, it can actually help us, because Jesus is clear. He says, if we try to exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. God will do that. If you try and exalt yourself, God will humble you. James four six in uh, in James, he's quoting Proverbs three thirty four. It says this: God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God actively opposes the proud. Those who are exalted are those who humble themselves. Before God. It's God who exalts. That's a spiritual principle. It's God who does that. And I think the reason he does that, I I mean, he's God, but I think the reason he does that is because he thinks, this is someone I can use. This person's humble. This person I can use for my kingdom. For instance, I often wonder, why did God choose Moses? Moses. Moses great leader. Well, do you know it says in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it says now Moses was a very humble man more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Moses, do you know that? Moses was the humblest man that ever lived in his day. Why did God use Moses? I wonder if it's something to do with his humility. My um, training incumbent um, when he was in America some years ago he came across a fridge magnet You know, some fridge magnets you don't want to have on your fridge because you don't want anyone to read them. And some fridge magnets are pretty good. And this one, I think, is really good. And uh, when he told me this, I've never seen the magnet, he just told me what it said. It, It stuck in my mind. And it says this, it says, You will be amazed what God will do through you if you don't mind who gets the glory. You will be amazed what God will do through you if you don't mind who gets the glory. I heard it said, and I believe it to be true, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. But more than that, I think a humble follower of Jesus is someone who wants Jesus to be exalted. Not them. That person sees themselves rightly before God and and wants Jesus to get the glory. That's really what humility is about. That's really what Jesus is looking for in all of us, in those Pharisees and in us. And at the end of the passage, we see Jesus addressing his host and saying this. He says, if you just pick it up with me at verse 12, Uh, Jesus is now turned to the host, to the Pharisee that invited him. And, And he says, when you give a dinner party, don't just invite your friends, your family or wealthy people, but instead invite the poor and the needy. Now, I should say at this point, I don't think Jesus is totally against us having dinner parties where we invite our friends over. Uh, and if that was the case, then um, Jesus wouldn't have done it in other places in Luke's Gospel. And actually, we see Jesus often reclining at the table in lots of different houses and, and people have invited him and he doesn't give them a hard time. So I don't think Jesus is saying it's not right to have parties and invite your mates. I think, I, I think that's okay. So what might he be saying if it isn't that? Well, I wonder if he's saying here to the host and possibly the other Pharisees, these men of standing, that I know why you give these parties. You give these parties because it grows your personal status among others. It makes you look good. It makes you a success. And then they'll invite you and you'll get some more glory and then you'll do another one. And it's all about you, Jesus is saying, I think. In contrast, I think Jesus is trying to say those that God sees as highly valued, those that God sees as highly, as with a great status, those who are great in God's eyes are those who care for the poor and the needy. So he says, when you have a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind... And you'll be blessed. Those who do not look to others for praise, value, status, or honor, but instead look to God for those things. Those who trust in God receive God's rewards. Now, Uh, It talks about that reward that's given at the resurrection of the righteous, be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I don't know what those are. Who knows what heavenly rewards are all about? But wouldn't it be great if on that day when we meet Jesus face to face, he says to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done, my precious son. Well done, my precious daughter. You served me and my purposes in the time that you had on this earth. You, you had a heart after mine. You did what I wanted you to do, not what gave you glory, not what made you look good, but what made me look good. And you cared for those that I cared for, that I care for. And I think we're justified in adding to this list, actually. Jesus lists... The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And I think we could add to it the spiritually poor, crippled, lame, and blind. In other words, those who don't yet know Jesus, the Saviour of the world. I think we can add that to to this list because they need the Lord Jesus just as much. And I think it's one one of the reasons why... I love doing Alpha and I'm sure you guys do love doing Alpha or other other things that you do here because on something like Alpha, we can invite a load of people who can't necessarily pay us back but who are going to come to know Jesus. And um, that's why I shared with you earlier, we've got a Muslim woman on at the moment, we've got this atheist Sikh guy, a couple of Hindus, a Buddhist and others and they all get fed and they get fed by this guy called Pedro and uh, Pedro... um, two years ago, was homeless in Hounslow. He's a a reason. I'm so glad we didn't stop the olive branch when my compassion was running low. Because Pedro um, came um, came to the olive branch and then he decided to come on Alpha. And Pedro came on Alpha and he became a Christian on Alpha. And uh, his life was completely changed. And then the next Alpha course, he said, can I bring my friend Talal? He's a Muslim. I said, yeah, bring your friend. So he brought his mate on Alpha and he became a Christian on the next Alpha And then Pedro said, what do I do now? I said, you can help on Alpha. And he said, well, I I, I said, what what do you do? He said, well, I'm a chef. I said, ah, we could do with a chef. So now he's our chef on Alpha. In fact, he cooked a great chicken casserole for me earlier today, because we do our Alpha after church on a Sunday. And, And... the reason I say that is he's, well, I suppose I am getting a reward, aren't I, actually, thinking about it. It goes completely against it because I'm getting a nice meal every time, he cooks, every time he cooks Alpha. So maybe I won't get a reward in heaven for that. But the point being that something like Alpha is great because you can just invite anybody and they will come and hear Jesus. It's not about our status. It's not something we're winning on, but it's something that God's winning on and they're winning on. So let's just conclude it, shall we? Jesus' kingdom always challenges our kingdom, the kingdom of this world, and and the kingdom of religion, if you like, uh, when it comes to tradition. Jesus calls us to compassion in place of religious tradition and to humility in place of personal status building. It's Jesus we look to, isn't it, as our role model? And it's through him, that he gives us his spirit to enable us to live that out. This is not just a pipe dream. Oh, I'd love to be more compassionate. I'd love to be more humble. Well, we know that as we follow Jesus, we have God's spirit within us, working in us, making us more like Christ. And just as I finish and hand over to Philip to lead us in prayer, um, I thought I'd I'd, uh, just finish with um, a little um, statement. This was... um, William Booth, who um, started the Salvation Army, as you probably know, in his last speech, he gave a, a sort of summary of what drove him in his lifetime. And I was really inspired by it, and I thought I'd just uh, finish with this as we, we end tonight, and then I'll uh, say a short prayer. And hopefully it kind of sums up a bit of what um, Jesus, I think, was saying to those Pharisees. So this was um, William Booth's last, last speech, and he said this. He said, while women weep, as they do now, I'll fight While little children go hungry, as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there's a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. And he did. Why shouldn't we?